You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hi there, everybody. Once again, Danny Anderson welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. This is a, a unique and I think I think is going to be an interesting show. Uh, it's one that we haven't done anything quite like before. We have a Christian Humanist Radio Network couples episode here. Uh, I am joined today with my wife, Kim Anderson. Kim, say hello, please. Hello. Um, and she's been on the show several times. And we are joined by the farmers, uh, Victoria and Michael Farmer. How are you guys doing? Good. Doing great. Thanks for having us. Um, no, this is great. This is kind of like a, a last, well, not I wouldn't say it's totally last minute, but it's sort of improvised um, about the film Love Actually. And it just so happens that we're having couples talk about this couple movie. Uh, and I think that couldn't uh, have worked out any, any more perfectly. So uh, the idea is that a couple of sort of Christmassy themed episodes to fall around the holidays. Uh, the one you heard last week was about Hallmark movies and, uh, and Hallmark Christmas movies, that is. And so this time, we're moving into kind of a, a a new classic of the of the Christmas film genre called Love Actually. If you have not seen it, it's a uh, kind of gigantic romantic comedy, and uh, and I guess we can talk a little bit about the uh, the plot uh, as we go on. If you haven't, I can't really summarize the plot because there are basically I count nine. Um, various storylines that yes. in, in, intersect in various ways, and so we can talk about those those key um, stories as we go here. But first of all, I guess it's interesting for me to talk about our experiences with this film because this has become a major tradition for Kim and I. Um, and so, uh, Kim, do you want to talk about how we started watching this movie and 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 what we do with it every year? <laughs> um, yeah, I think we basically just went to go see it. I have always liked Hugh Grant, although, I mean, he tends to play scoundrels in movies. Um, this might be one of the exceptions. And uh, we went to go see it at Christmas time, and I just enjoyed the movie. And then we've watched it, I think, almost every Christmas since then. I don't know if we've ever missed a year. And so it's just been a tradition of ours to kind of watch it as a, you know, get in the mood for Christmas. So I, I think it is Hugh Grant that is the draw for me, too, because one of my, and I this must have come out after Love Actually. I'm just thinking of timelines here. This is Love Actually. Um, no, no. The, I'm <laughs> thinking about About a Boy, uh, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, and I believe that's first. I believe that comes out first. Okay. I think that's 2002. Okay. I think you're right. And, and so that one to me is like an ultimately great movie. I love Love Ac- or, uh, About a Boy. And we saw that on a plane to Scotland. <laughs> we were traveling over uh, to Europe. And I just instantly fell in love with that movie. And so we became kind of big Hugh Grant fans, I think, at that moment. And so when this came out, for me, that was the big draw and uh and so and he's plays a very different character in here but he still has 
the charm um, of uh, of high period Hugh Grant, I think. And yeah, it's become sort of our one of our. We have two movies basically that we watch as couples every or three, I guess, about a boy. Uh, this movie and um, While You Were Sleeping, which is another one of my favorite movies. Um, I, I do love While You Were Sleeping with Sandra Bullock. You're a complicated man, Danny. <laughs> I know, I'm learning so much about you right now. It's wonderful. I am really drawn to movies about um, misfits being drawn together, right? And so I think uh, this movie is about that in some to some degree. About a Boy is certainly about that. But I think that's the charm of a uh, While You Were Sleeping. It's not so much a couple finding each other as it is a group finding each other. And so that's a, that's a big value of mine. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I tear up just thinking about these cheesy movies. So, um, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's sort of my experience. What about you? What about the farmers? Uh, well, I, should I take this one? Sure. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, uh, as you can possibly tell by Michael's, tone of response um i am mostly the impetus for us watching this movie repeatedly um i saw it for the first time i was uh in high school when it came out i think like 17 and i saw it with my parents in the theater oh my um, god how, how uncomfortable must that have been <laughs> um i was mostly fine um i had been in college already uh i went to see the movie because of the cast i have always been an anglophile um, you can't really get better than this cast for like British wonderful actors. You've already mentioned Hugh Grant. Um, the draw for me was twofold, well, threefold, I guess. Colin Firth, Emma Thompson, and Alan Rickman. Um, I've had a rather inappropriate crush on Alan Rickman, may he rest in peace, <laughs> since I was about eight years old and saw him as the sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, oh. um, and just loved like all his scenery-chewing <laughs> glory. <laughs> Speaking of inappropriate. Yeah, that, um, that seems to require psychotherapy. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, was, I had nightmares about the witch in that movie for many years. But anyway, um, yeah. But have you ever I, seen the breasts of an English woman? I have not. <laughs> It's true. Um, anyway, I love this movie immediately. My parents hated it, um, but I have watched it pretty much every year since. Um, mostly because I love the people in it, not necessarily because I love the romantic plots, uh, though I do like some of them, but we can talk about the ones I don't like later. Um, I really like the interlocking nature of it. The fact that like these people are sort of floating in and out of each other's lives the way that real life kind of happens. Um, yeah. It's like an Altman movie for dumb people. No offense. <laughs> it's like a what movie? Robert Altman. Oh. Uh, <laughs> oh gosh, that's that was cruel. That was unnecessary. So as you can tell, Michael is going to be our naysay. He's the Dwight McDonald of this episode. Yeah, uh, I do not like this movie and i agree with everything victoria said like i like movies with interlocking plots and characters i love altman i love uh pt anderson this is a great cast you can't do better than colin firth and and emma thompson and laura linney who's not british but who's in this i love laura linney and yet man do i hate this movie i just hate it hate it hate it hate it hate it so uh, i'm sorry that i'm gonna be the one who craps all over uh, love actually I know, Kim, you, you kind of unabashedly love the movie, too, right? Um. um, Yes, but that doesn't mean that I don't see the flaws in it. And I do have to say that, so, Dan and I might be, um, as much as Dan loves horror movies, um, Dan and I might be, like, 
And when it comes to romantic comedies, the opposite here. We watch While You Were Sleeping because Dan introduced me to While You Were Sleeping. Um, and generally, I sleep through While You Were Sleeping. Um, it's a joke. Like, I'll say, I'm kind of tired tonight. Let's watch While You Were Sleeping. Um, so, so I don't like romantic comedies because sometimes, many times, they're not good. They're, they're hollow, right? And I think... And and I think, you know, if you listen to the I we haven't recorded it yet, but if you listen to the Hallmark um episode, I think that's part of what that will be about is 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 that, you know, a lot of romantic comedies are just hollow. And I don't think this one I think there are some storylines that maybe are a little, but I don't I think there are some that aren't, that they're not tied up in a bow at the end of the movie. And I think life is complicated and there are lives that are not tied up in a bow and pretty and easy and and I think that's part of the reason why I like it is because I mean it I think it's well done, but at the same time it um it doesn't just leave you feeling good. There are storylines that you're like "Eh, that didn't work out the way that you know (laughs) but it worked out the way it should have maybe yeah yeah true sometimes and and do let me say this there is absolutely nothing culturally brave about me crapping on love actually i get that that is a majority (laughs) opinion in a lot of ways so don't think that i think of myself as some sort of uh fonzie type too cool for love actually movie i get that the cool thing is to is to hate it so uh yeah and you guys are the we're the what Brave ones. <laughs> well, I, I do love the movie and I, I enjoy watching it every year. Um, I do, though, understand there's a lot of kind of troubling aspects to it as well. And so, I mean, it's kind of the a typical stance of this show is to find like interesting things in what other people might dismiss uh, as uninteresting from the outset. And so in some ways, this is a kind of a perfect topic for the show in general. Um, I, I But I still just unabashedly do love this movie while seeing and being troubled by certain aspects of it, quite a few and more and more as it goes on, I think. But, uh, but yeah, last year, last night we watched it again and that was however many years in a row, 15 years in a row or something that we've seen this movie. And, uh, and it, to me, it hasn't really lost um, any of its initial charm. I think I understand its flaws a little more with every passing year, but, uh, but yeah, I still uh, enjoy it, but I also enjoy talking about some of the flaws. And so I want to get to there uh, in a minute. I, I guess if in case someone is not watching this or has not seen the movie, I mean, it's kind of hard. It's like one of those movies hard to imagine. Anybody listening to the show hasn't seen this movie, but if you haven't, um, there is a lot of uh, like in a, a little, not a lot, but there's quite a bit of inappropriate like sexual material. So be prepared for that. Um, um, and there's, you know, quite a bit of language and that sort of thing too. So it, it's not, and, and there's like a, a, Oh gosh, uh, a blah. There's a crassness to it. It like takes very blase. <laughs> crass it's British. Pers- it curses in a way that's British, and it deals with sexual material in a way that's British that comes off harsh to American audiences. But like, especially if you know that it's directed by Richard Curtis, yeah, um, who has done some of the best um, romantic comedies ever. He did the first two Bridget Joneses, um, which are the good ones. Don't watch the third one. It is. <laughs> hot garbage um, <laughs> no they're great and they have both Hugh Grant and Colin Firth oh. so I mean that's I, incredible I have to say to whatever it is you people like about Hugh Grant uh, and maybe it's because I was 12 years old when he got caught with that prostitute and that's the first thing I ever knew about him but I cannot stand that guy and do not understand why you're all so in love with him. I mean, I liked him before the prostitute um, 
And I mean, maybe we all make mistakes. It's a discussion for another day. But I think it's like it, it was always, I mean, a guilty pleasure, I guess. I mean, he's attractive and awkward and I don't know. I just like that he he is a jerk who's lovable, sort of like, yeah. and I think yeah. that that's why the prostitute thing didn't bother me. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of and so so <laughs> that thing cat. that we that thing that we associate with Hugh Grant is because of Richard Curtis, because Richard yeah. Curtis not only gives us the first two Bridget Joneses, he also gives us Four Weddings and a Funeral, which is Hugh Grant's sort of big uh, break with American audiences. But in terms of comedy, um, Curtis also does like all of the best British sitcoms of the 90s and 2000s, uh, French and Saunders, Vicar of Dibley, and Mr. Bean. Um, we have Rowan Atkinson in, in Love Actually, too. So that sort of slapstick, bawdy, loud, yelly British comedy is very Richard Curtis. Yeah, um, I totally get that. And um, incidentally, you, Grant, uh, on the subject that before we move on, is it a really interesting and utterly weird horror film called Layer of the White Worm with uh, Amanda Donahoe? It's uh, an extremely interesting and bizarre horror film, but definitely worth your uh, worth, worth your view. So, um, but yeah, Four Weddings and the Funeral, I think you're right, is the, it sets the template for this kind of almost like twisted version of a romantic comedy, right? And for me, the... The part that is kind of off-putting, and as I get older, maybe this becomes more off-putting, is when Liam Neeson has really kind of frank, like, sexual conversations with his stepson about, oh, yeah, I'm going to have sex with this woman in every room, including yours, right? And so, like, I I find that to be, like, off-putting in a way that transcends its Britishness, but um, there's sort of, I don't know, just like a blasé crassness that... I could put up with, but it it will might bother other people just uh, just for all, uh, you know, just to be fair. The other caveat I would give is that I am not an Anglophile. So things that appeal to people who want to be British like Victoria just aren't going to appeal to me on that level. So uh, Mr. Bean, I never understood. I, 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 in some ways, I, I may just not get British comedy and I'm willing to. Admit I didn't either. But you I, don't. I like you him. just don't get it. I like Mr. Bean in this movie, though, but I don't generally like him. Yeah, I think he's super interesting in this movie, actually. Um, but um, so real quickly, I, I think it's only fair to kind of um, set up the the various threads as best I can kind of um, calculate it. There's a series of pairs and triplets that uh, like kind of dominate these uh, these relationship stories. And I think the four main ones are the prime minister and his uh, Natalie and Natalie, his uh, cook or whatever uh, in, in the catering uh, manager, catering manager, as he Gee, says, girl. yeah, in, uh, in, in Downing, 10 Downing street. So that's one. There is the, um, uh, the, the story between Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson, Karen and Harry, Karen and Harry. I, I'm not going to be good with the names just because the actors are so famous. I can't remember their character names uh, often. So Karen and Harry and Harry has an affair. And so there, there's that sort of like triplet there. There's um, uh, Jamie Mr. And Darcy, oh. <laughs> Jamie and Aurelia. Yes, uh, Colin Firth uh, and his romance with another like sort of servant uh, figure in uh, in Aurelia, this Portuguese um, servant that serves him in France while he's writing his book. Housekeeper, uh, servant makes it sound like she lives there and does everything for him. She comes Dan in is, and cleans his house. Dan is already trying to bring in class warfare <laughs> into this. Well, so I think it's worth to, considering. Yeah, you'll have um, to excuse his Marxist viewpoint. <laughs> Uh, far be it for me to 
it a fit, Love Actually, but that that particular plot in terms of the power imbalance doesn't bother me nearly as much as some of the other ones. Yeah, uh, for sure, right? But it's a, it's a motif. And then for me, the fourth big one is the little boy um, and and his his dual romance between his stepfather um, and this girl at school. There's sort of like a, a triad of those two coming together centered around this little boy. Um, and I think those are the four big ones. Um, for, and you guys can debate whether the other ones should count as big ones or not, but those are the most dramatic ones. And those are the ones that the movie sort of climaxes with. And so maybe it's a poor choice of term, <laughs> but the, uh, I, I would also make a case for Laura Lenny, Sarah, and, uh, and Carl. not so not so much Carl as her relationship with her mentally ill brother. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the fifth one. Right. And so you have this sort of these expatriate sibling pair, one of who's in a mental hospital and one of whom works for this magazine um, and, and she has a crush on a guy but ends up being drawn back to her brother so another triplet um, and then there's the uh, the rock star played I mean to me Bill Nye kind of um, is essential to this movie because he's just he is the funniest thing in the movie for sure um, but his uh, uh, his relationship with his manager um, is the is another one there is the young couple who are stand-ins on apparently a big budget porn film <laughs> <laughs> so they they're sort of like body doubles for uh, uh, the shooting of a, a big budget foreign film played by Martin Freeman and Joanne. What's her name? Uh, forget her last name. Um, She's from EastEnders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, there's that one. And then um, Colin, who's this sort of uh, guy who works for a catering company and is just obsessed with women. He basically spends the whole movie sexually harassing every woman he finds and uh, and goes to America to find uh, true shallow love and and he's successful with that and i think those are the main storylines have i missed any you you skipped juliet and peter oh yes uh that's right and mark juliet peter and mark another um awkward triad right and so um and that one is sort of an unrequited love sort of uh secret love um sort of uh story there so nine stories and all of them seem to hover in the same little world and uh and they come in and out of each other's stories at moments and and so uh do you guys have a particular favorite? I knew I had saved this for later, but maybe this is a good time to get into which storyline you think is most interesting to talk about. The one I think is the most artistically successful, maybe the only one that's even a little bit artistically successful for me is the Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman one. I, yeah. I think that unlike some of these other ones actually has some real feeling behind it. I still think it's kind of ham fistedly done, but it is responsible for the movies. I would say one scene of real emotion, which is when she's listening to Joni Mitchell and trying not to scream. I, I, I mean, Emma Thompson's so good that that scene could not be good. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I think that Emma Thompson is utter, the only like utterly essential like actress or character and, and performer in this movie. And I think I totally agree that that the gravity, she's like doing so many things at the same time. The weight of that performance is like, she's trying to mourn while putting on a brave face for her children, while being angry, while listening to Joni Mitchell and making the bed at the same time. It's just, it's a rather incredible performance. Um, and uh, yeah, her her smoothing that blanket every time just kills me yeah. like the amount of emotional labor that she's putting forth and he's just like so clueless and stupid yeah yeah and 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 the way that story is told is really interesting to me too because 
at first it's kind of like a cute, oh, this guy has this young woman who's like flirting with in the office. Isn't that going to be cute? Where's that going to go? And then you realize that he's married, right? Uh, like, you know, that that bit of detail isn't revealed until later. And, um, and that is, that makes it kind of like uh really super sad and creepy. And the movie doesn't let him off the hook for it. Like there's a really kind of melancholic ending in their story. She, they say they're, they're in the air. All the characters end up at the airport at the same time at the end of the movie. And she's let's go home. Like with this real look of dread almost. In well, her he face. says, how are you? And she says, I'm okay. Yeah. Like, I don't know. That's very well acted, too, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think. And she, I think it's worth pointing out, she knows what's up, like, basically before he does. She says, when they're at the Christmas party, she says, like, Mia's very pretty. Watch out for that. Mm -hmm. And she has this awareness of his social standing and surroundings that he either doesn't seem to have or seems to make himself ignore. And he is kind of portrayed as this... I don't know, oaf kind of character. I mean, he gets the, like, the Carl and Sarah, you know, that they're in love and things like that. But then other than that, he's not a very likable character. Um, He's kind of, I don't know, you don't see him interacting with the kids. You don't see him, uh, I don't know. And so, yeah, he needs to be told things, right? And yeah, I think that's interesting. It is. He's very sort of grumpy and gruff. And except for that little human moment where he's trying to help Sarah get with Carl. Um, yeah, he just he doesn't seem particularly nice, I guess, when you think about it. You you guys like that moment. I find that so obnoxious that her boss would call her in there and say, hey, you need to get laid. <laughs> I, I thought it was weird, actually. That never occurred to me till last night watching it again. I'm like, this is a really weird <laughs> Yeah. What kind of workplace is this? Yeah. Well, this is not a movie that plays well post Me Too in terms of its sexual politics, right? There's so much entangling of professional and sexual ethics in ways that are deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, it is it is interesting. I haven't really read anything in light of Me Too about this movie, but but yeah, it I mean particularly Colin who, you know, up until now is just oh, this is horny young guy, right? You know, and but he's like obnoxiously hitting on every woman that comes across his path, right? And uh and so yeah, there is a, a way in which this movie hasn't aged well on that front for sure. Um and- Also, uh let me just crush uh any positive vibes uh, that we may have about that character. That's an actual industry. There's like series of trips that you can sign up for if you are a man from the UK to go to America and have sex with women. There's like an entire Colin <laughs> Frizzle industry that is real. After it the, works the, the other way too though, right? British British chicks love American accents. <laughs> I, no, I, I don't know. I, why? No one loves my Cleveland accent. I can tell you that. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, is that inspired by this movie? Like- I don't know. <laughs> I, I, no, I think I'm American- aware of it after this movie, but I feel like that was probably always a thing. Wow. That's interesting. I mean, there are some great, I mean, he's hilarious. I mean, he's very funny. And uh, I mean, like American woman will see me as Prince William without the weird family. Right. I mean, there's some really great lines. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that storyline has not aged. That's that one's aged worse for me than any of the other ones, I think. Well, but I think that was always, always there to make fun of America. And I think that's mm. one thing 
that this movie does subtly in a couple of different ways. There's Colin and there's the president. But, um, you know, Colin, first of all, he comes, you know, he's he is not a successful quarter, right? He's bad at getting women. And he thinks the solution is come to come to America. And so then he comes to America. And what do they like about him is just his accent. And then then he has this moment where he you know, they're all going to spend the night in the room, you know, the house with no clothes because they're so poor. Um, and then they show the house that kind of looks like a low income house. It's all decorated gaudily, right? For how, for Christmas. And then, um, he, he says something about, they, they say there's one more that's coming. She's the sexy one. He's like, Oh, praise the Lord. And then they say, Oh, and he's a Christian. <laughs> um, to me, that scene like is just tiny little, 30 seconds, but it's, it's kind of there to make fun of America. And then you've also got the president who I think, I mean, we've had lots of conversations about the president over the years about how he, um, is kind of like a mixture between Clinton and Bush, you know, the bad of yes. and Bush and, 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 and he has this, um, of this comment, I, I had written it down, but I think I got rid of that piece of paper where he says, like, I'll give you anything you want as long as it's not something I don't want to give. Um, you know, just kind of like America is shown as this powerhouse that um, is just going to step on toes. And, you know, and is this is this an accurate portrayal of America? I mean, I think that I don't know that the Colin was ever a deep storyline. I think it was there just to kind of show how stupid Americans are kind of. I don't know. Yeah, I would... we should. Also mention that the president is played by Billy Bob Thornton, who like he's always disconcerting, even when he's charming. Um, <laughs> Robert so that's it. Said, and I'll never forget this. I, I think about it every time I watch a Billy Bob Thornton part. He, Robert Jer Ebert said his smile is charming, but not reassuring. <laughs> well, and that I think that we were talking in the car on the way over here. I think he's not so much supposed to seem presidential. Or, or maybe to me, he comes off not so much as presidential, but as like a corporate slick guy, mm. um, you know, like a cool salesman or something like that. And that quote kind of just embodies what I think that is. And the only moment that you see this Nick in his armor is after the Hugh Grant character, the prime minister, is like, well, I'm not going to stand for this, you know. Um, and you see him for just a moment look weak, but the rest of the time he just looks like this self-assured soul, you know, prick, right? Okay. Sorry. Prick. And to, and okay. to me, 25, like the grossest. <laughs> I'm not allowed to come. <laughs> yeah, no swearing on the show. <laughs> it's like Barnes on the show again here. He looks like a prick. <laughs> this self-assured prick. <laughs> to me, the grossest part of that scene, and like I... Billy Bob Thornton makes my skin crawl anytime I see him. So like, I just, it's my reaction to him. But the grossest part is the part where you don't hear any dialogue and you see him talking to Natalie and he's um, touching her, lifting up her hair so that he can whisper in her ear. And just like, as a woman, like I've been in situations where men don't pay attention to your personal space or, in other ways, like feel joy in violating your personal space. And every time I see that part of that movie, I get this horrible physical reaction to it. Like it's just so gross and such a violation. Yeah. And to the movie's okay, credit, but- it means that to be your reaction, right? That's the intent it's going for. That isn't an unintentional. Um, but yeah, but it is really hard to watch. 
But Hugh Grant starts a trade war with the United States because the president was hitting on his girlfriend. I mean, let's let's not let's not be alive that. And and nobody seems to mind. Everybody's cool with this. You know, he's basically Donald Trump. That's that's totally something Trump would do, isn't it? Uh, it- Oh my god! Start a trade war because his feelings were hurt. That's what happens. That's the plot of that movie. He would be on Twitter, wouldn't he? Holy cow! You're right. Um, see the new depths of this movie. Um, for sure. Um, also, by the way, the notion that Natalie has to apologize to uh, Prime Minister, whatever his name, David. Yeah. Oh yeah, she does nothing wrong, and she's the one who apologizes to him. Terrible. Also, is this a good place to talk about how this movie hates fat people and Natalie is not fat in any way? That really hates people. That really always drives me crazy when they talk about her being plump, right? Um, And so, you know, so, but I have a a reason what I think the movie is trying to do with that that whole storyline, right? Um, Is that, so we talked about the president of the United States in this movie being an amalgam of like the worst of Bill Clinton and the worst of George W. Bush. Right. Um, And so the prime minister and that story with Natalie is clearly referencing Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton. Okay. I mean, yeah. um, Natalie wears a blue dress too. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, the kind of the kind of crass jokes at the time were about Monica Lewinsky's weight. Right. And so I think that those references there, they got an actress, who I guess could pass as plump, even though she's clearly not, I suppose. She's like I a think size 10, you guys. I know, I know. Is that the, the British tabloids had been talking about that woman's weight for several years and that it's in part a joke about the way they treated her. Oh, is that right? So, because she was on uh, some some British soap opera, wasn't she? Uh, yes. Yeah, what, what was it? EastEnders, wasn't it? Um, isn't isn't that actress from that show? I, I don't know, actually. Um, the, the porno actress is from EastEnders. Oh, Let me see. I thought this one was, too. Um, so, she was. Martine McCutcheon is her name. She was on EastEnders. You're right. Okay. How about that? Yeah. So I think I always took it a different way. I think the movie kind of makes fun of itself in a number of different ways. But I think... I think they're making fun of people that would think she's plump. Like, you know, the president says, uh, like, look at the thighs on that one or whatever. And and Hugh Grant's like, would we call her plumpy? And, (laughs) you know, like like he is always astounded that anybody would call her fat. Right. And um, and so I think you've got the you've got some characters making her seem like she's fat and you've got him because he loves her and thinks she's beautiful, not seeing it. And I think the movie's kind of making fun of all the people that think she is. Um, that's how but, how I always took it. But there are other people in the film whose entire characterization is that they're fat. Joe, the manager, is like they mm-hmm. never just say manager; they always say fat manager. My fat manager. And, all, <laughs> and also, uh, I mean, he is. But like, why do we have to say it every time? And also, Aurelia's sister—we don't even know what her name is. Oh. We just know that she's fat and not attractive. Miss Dunkin' Donuts. Miss Dunkin' Donut 2003. Her dad calls her this, right? Yeah. Um, this is a good point. I you know, honestly had never uh, even caught on to that motif. Like I was always um, just sort of fixated on the, the political aspect of the relationship there. But yeah, that does kind of carry through a lot of places. What? said shocking that you would be fixated on the political aspect. <laughs> well, and I, let me go back to that real quick. So I do think that this movie has this kind of 
like Aaron Sork. I mean, the one character Mark talks about, oh, everything's episodes of West Wing. Like he's obsessed with West Wing, right? And so um, I do feel like there's this real kind of idiotic form of liberalism that underlies this. And it wants to sort of like scold Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and, and people like that for all their obvious failings. But it also wants to like sanctify Bill Clinton's inappropriate relationship with Monica Lewinsky at the same time. Right. And just sort of write that off as perfectly natural, a perfectly, you know, acceptable form of, of romantic love. And so I think that that I always sort of took the weight um, comments in that case as more and more references to Monica Lewinsky. Right. And, and that whole, that whole situation. And, and this is one of my kind of critiques of the movie is I think it has, it's just basking in this elite liberalism that this, that's loves multicultural symbolic gestures of interracial marriage and that sort of thing that we open the movie with. Um, but it utterly, utterly also loves like power dynamics that are inherent in capitalism. Okay. <laughs> and it wants to make those all okay. And, and so, yeah. And so I think that, that that is one critique I have of the movie. Um, actually, I mean, these are all very rich people. Even Natalie, her family seems to to me to live in a pretty nice house. I don't know what, uh, what British houses are like, but I'm pretty sure London's the most expensive city in the world. And they, they seem to own a two story house. And it's the dodgy the end. City. It's the dodgy end of London. Right. Yeah, it looks I mean, pretty they rough. They live in Wandsworth, which is not, I mean, it's not a great neighborhood, but it's not a terrible one. Right. So, I mean, and everybody else has these magnificent apartments that are bigger than our apartment. So they must cost 10 times what ours costs. I like these, these are a bunch of rich people who have the means to, uh, to pursue all their ridiculous, grand romantic gestures. Except for Sarah, who lives in a one-room studio walk-up and has to uh, apologize to her teddy bear before she hides him under the bed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that scene is really, I, I don't know. I, I always find that scene with Sarah and Carl to be really tragic. But even before, I mean, before the break, before it doesn't happen, before it's cut off, um, it's, I feel like... It's so lovely and human, though. Like, yes, it's very sad, but I find it so relatable. Like, she picks up the clothes and puts them in the chair. Everybody has the laundry chair, right? Yeah. And, uh, and covers them with her jacket. Like, it's just so human. And, yeah, my favorite part is with the teddy bear. I love that she kisses it before she shoves it under the bed. That's so, like, childish and wonderful. But I don't get any sense that Carl actually he's the biggest blank in this movie. Um, yeah. And I feel he's like, basically there to have a chest. It, it, that's yeah, totally he true exists to be ridiculously hot, which yeah. he is. His torso is like, I mean, should be in a museum. Right. And so <laughs> and so I think that he uh, Kim, you said something about him being a bad actor or something. Um, um, yeah. Um, I mean, I think I think he is there to be attractive. But I think that of all the actors in the movie, I think he's. He's not good. Um, I also, I think one one thing about this movie is many of the relationships are just based on physical attraction. And that one clearly is, right? They loved each other from the moment they saw each other, but then never really talked to each other in the office and things like that. Then they finally have this opportunity to, let's face it, have sex with each other and maybe not ever talk to each other again. And then she gets the phone call that like saves them from that. And and he, he makes this comment, um, life is full of interruptions and complications. Yeah. And he's willing to, like, deal with the first one. But then when the second one comes, he, he likes – he physically moves away from her on the bed. And, and to me, it's like a good man 
would like to me that scene always bothers me because a, a wonderful man would then follow up with her in the office like i think they're both impeccably shy but now you've already had this moment you would a good man would be like let's go on an actual date and have dinner and talk right yeah um or or perhaps go with her to right. the mental hospital <laughs> exactly. and like engage in her that, life that right is yeah a big step Going and visiting somebody's mentally ill brother in an institution, that is not something you do lightly. Yeah, maybe to be you don't do that. Part. Right. To, I, and, right. And, and by the way, I don't expect I him to do it. Or as expect him to do it on the first date, but like maybe they talk and actually have a relationship. And then he says, hey, I understand that your brother is an important part of your life. How about you let me into this situation? Ask a follow-up question in that moment, right? Like, you can ask a follow-up question. He doesn't even do that. He physically moves away from her on the bed. He's not willing to live with any more interruptions. And, you know, to me, that's like, so, anyway. But but she has twice told her brother, no, I'm not doing anything. Right. (laughs) I I mean, I don't blame him for for moving away from her. She she said that twice. Yeah. Well, okay. But you have to put yourself in her shoes as well, right? She's caretaking her brother's health, I I agree. I agree. I don't, I mean... But but also know that this is just like physical, right? This is not, you know, I don't know. I don't excuse her for basically just wanting and, to get laid. And, and I don't want to say that this is a weakness in the movie. I think this is one of the, the stronger parts of the movie. I think Carl's very blankness is part of the point here is that he that he's a he's a fantasy for her. Exactly. I mean, if you every time they're the last people at the office, she this is also sad and really wonderful. She puts on lipstick and blush at her desk, like obviously for him in order to prepare for the interaction where she's like, good night. Right. And that she like has to ready herself for that. And it's so sad and great and understandable. Yeah. And neither of them obviously have a life, right? I mean, I think they're both portrayed as not having lives. We don't get much of a window into his life. We get a window only into hers. And I think maybe that's a shame. Well, you could say that about a lot of the characters in this movie, though. They don't seem to do much beyond their jobs, right? Um, and and so that is a uh, that is an interesting uh, another another interesting line of thinking about this movie. Yeah. But I, I never felt happy for her when that relationship looked like it was going to happen because it totally looked like oh. Here's my chance. I I understand this girl has a crush on me. I can you know get a little action um, at the Christmas after the Christmas party, right? And so the, and and all of even the things he said about oh life's full of little interruptions or something. It all is so banal and and not even like human. It sounds like it's a, a some sort of bot generated uh, thing to say in certain situations. And so I feel like her true romance in this movie. And that's one of the great things about this movie is with her brother. And that's what she discovers at the end. We see her in this really beautiful moment, exchanging gifts with her brother in the mental hospital. Right. And so he saves her from this like really kind of cheap relationship um, and, and brings her back into the really full one, which just happens to be a sibling one. Um, But But it's still love. But I think part of it is that Carl was also shy. And I think that neither of them were going to take that step. And you see this in life, right? Neither were going to take that step because they were both so shy. We just don't know much about him. Um, Not to give him an excuse, but. Yeah. Because when they're dancing, you see this like kind of emotion on his face, that that's about the only time that you see emotion on his face. But um, that, that it looks like he's, I don't know, feeling something too. Yeah. Well, yeah. But it's all based on attraction. Like yeah, they it's haven't, all lust, I think. They yeah. haven't had any, 
any words. Yeah, right? you've never spoken to this person, barely, you know, and so yeah. I don't know. Um, true, true of a number of relationships in this film, people right. who are in love without actually having conversations with mm-hmm. one another or conversations that each person can understand. And uh, yeah, I and that's that I think is a big theme. And the one exception to that is um, Jack and Judy, the the couple that's the stand in for the porn. Um, they, you know, they've gone as far as I mean, acting out these like, you know, <laughs> very graphic sexual acts with each other. Um, but at the same time, the conversations that they're having are very sweet and innocent. And I think that is one couple that we've talked about how many of them are elitist. We don't really. I don't. I don't know that they are. I think that they live in. Um, they seem not to be, um, you know, very yeah. rich either. I, I think. I think that's a gross. What? They can't be a profession that pays much. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a, a gross overstatement by my husband. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, but I think that's the point that they 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 stand in the movie to make that contrast for everybody else, right? right? So the only people who are not like wrapped up in status and appearance are these two like innocent people who are like mimicking it for for their job, right? But they actually have a quite conservative um, traditional relationship. They apparently wait to have sex until they get married, right? Uh, at the end of the movie, and, and so uh, like they're the only ones that have like any kind of like real relational development over t- over time in which real communication has taken place. Even Colin Firth and Aurelia are not speaking the same language. They're just sort of in the same space. And it's, it's beautiful. I love that scene, but that's still not actual communication. They don't know anything about each other's selves. Um, unlike Jack and Judy who do. Right. And so I think that, and it's, I think it's no accident that those are the only characters who are both, like in a different economic class than everybody else. Um, and so, um, um, any other, I, I think we haven't talked about, uh, the, uh, the, the, the boy and Liam Neeson. Um, I can't remember the boy's name. Uh, Sam. 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 Thank you. Um, and so, yeah, Liam Neeson is the stepfather of a little boy and, and the movie kind of one of the things of the opening is his mother has just died. And so he's the stepfather is now the sole parent. Right. And so, and Sam has a crush on a little girl and a little American girl at school. And, uh, and that crush is like the opportunity for, the, the father to kind of become the father to the son. Right. And so in as much as he's pursuing, Sam is pursuing this re- romantic relationship with a girl. It's actually there to create this beautiful kind of bonding between father and son, right? Newly minted father and son. He even calls him dad at the end. Right. I love that storyline. And I think it's super important. What, what do you guys think about that? I think it's precious. Uh, Thomas Sangster is adorable, but like, so I, I appreciate that they bond with each other, but how come at no point is he like, hey, let's have a chat about the fact that this girl has the same name as your dead mother, and that <laughs> might be a significant thing for you psychologically. <laughs> like, why do they not have a conversation about that? That's bad. <laughs> the movie, I mean, the characters in the movie explicitly avoid taking anything seriously. I mean, that's the, I mean, the song at the beginning that Bill Nye is recording when he realizes that Christmas is all around, it's this trashy remake and they know it's trashy. They call it solid gold SHI expletive. Right. And so, um, and that I think that's the, the stance that all the characters take is that 
we're in a time when taking anything seriously is for dumb people, right? And so, and so I think that they explicitly avoid any kind of moment to take anything too seriously like that. And so I think it's consistent with, I think you're right, Victoria, but I think it's like consistent with a lot of what else goes on in the movie. I think and you love this movie? You love this this I, I do. shallow nihilism? <laughs> I think that's one of the things I appreciate about the movie is that it's willing to make fun of itself. That it, that they, I mean, I think that's probably what Dan likes about it too, is that the people are willing to like recognize what their weaknesses are and make fun of them from the musician who knows that this is crap to the, crap. Um, the, just said crap, the but... guy that's writing the book. Uh, what's his name? Jamie. Um, you know, he's writing the book and he says, this is your grandmother probably could have written this. Like, <laughs> I mean, how many of us are going through live our lives and are like, you know, we're doing our best, but sometimes you're just like, I don't know that I'm, you know, that I'm the stuff I'm churning out is, is solid gold. Right. Um, I, I get it. And, but I think Michael's right. I think this movie does rest a little too uneasily or too easily in kind of irony, irony, right? And so it's very postmodern in that way. And I know that, I mean, several years ago when I was still um, a fill in for Grubs on your show on the Kristen Humanist podcast, we did a show on metamodernism, right? Um, and I think this movie is. It could have used a little meta modern, um, like search for sincerity. I think. Uh, do you think? What do you think about that, Michael? I think what fills in for meaning or sincerity uh, is just uh, sentimentality. So it it shifts wildly for me between this kind of nihilistic irony and then sentimentality that I'm supposed to feel for. And I think the peak of this is the kid running through the airport to to tell this girl whom he's never again who's never spoken to again yes um, that that he loves her which is absurd on a million levels maybe the highest of which is that she is going to be back in 2 weeks <laughs> and he he has to shut down this airport to make this grand gesture that to me just collapses into complete sentimentality like like most of the grand romantic gestures the other one is and and we haven't even talked about this plot but mark is in love with juliet and he shows up outside her house with these stupid cue cards um, just the worst from the, the worst that's, I have, that's from the bob dylan video though right that's a that's a cultural reference there which is wouldn't another, it be great if if all he had on the cue cards were the words to subterranean homesick blues <laughs> but that but yeah, it would be hilarious but that's like pastiche that's very postmodern pastiche right and so and it is painful but go ahead so uh, one one thing that i wanted to say is as i was watching this again last night it occurred to me that so that plot is obviously we've got middle schoolers right and when you're in middle school you are attracted to somebody that you've never talked to and that's kind of okay in middle school and maybe make the grand gesture and then you guys get together and that's cool but so many of these plots like they try to do that or they do that but it's completely either based on physical attraction and you've never talked to the person or physical attraction you've got the like mia in the office um you know who maybe it's physical attraction and power and things like that um like so many of the plots are based on just that attraction it's very middle school right Mm. um but um I don't know what my second point was, so I'll just let, leave it at that. <laughs> but, I, I want to talk about Jamie and Aurelia for a minute about okay. the, can, the the just attraction. Can I can I say one yeah. thing about um, the kid though, Sam? Oh, one more sure. time before you get to yes. that. So I, I just to um, um, follow up on Michael. So Michael hates the airport scene, right? I think that's it, hate it, hate it. You know, it's shut down Heathrow on Christmas Eve. <laughs> Ugh. 
So I'm thinking. I wish of they would have put the kid in jail. <laughs> I or think, the dad. I'm thinking yeah, of well, the, both of them. Well, I'm One thinking big of the jailbird family. But I'm thinking of this symbolically and in ter- in context of its political moment, right? This is that opens up with a reference to 9-11, right? When Hugh Grant is giving the kind of introductory framing of the movie about uh, when the planes hit the Twin Towers, I don't think anybody was calling loved ones with messages of hate. They were messages of love. And so from the beginning, this movie is two years after 9-11, right? And what is the the main kind of artifact of the of what happens to the world after 9-11 is airport security, right? So having this little boy, this of like this little figment of innocent love bust through airport security, um, I think is actually a really beautiful political statement, honestly. And I love that about the movie when he um, dives over the security fence and, uh, and, and finds a way to, uh, um, to, to break the security that, that is a sign of this ter- paranoid, terrified world that we live in after 9-11. I think it actually works really well. I, I, I love that part of the movie. And so, um, but yeah, and I know that I'm, I'm, I'm a sap though. <laughs> I do say, I will say that, but, but I don't disagree agree with Michael's point about the irony that that is something that does bother me about this movie um, in my and I'll send this back to Victoria in one second um, my detective fiction class this year we read um, Colson Whitehead's first book which was called The Intuitionist um, and it's very postmodern um, in every kind of formal way um, but there are definitely moments where people like try to reach outside of the irony and reach towards some sort of sincere belief in something. Right. And so my class went on about how this is a re- resolution to the ironic problem in Paul Auster's um, City of Glass, um, and which is just resting in postmodern irony. And so um, I think that this movie doesn't do that. It just rests in the postmodern irony, well, um, that, except in that moment where they're conscious aesthetic choice. Like, so the Coen brothers have a series of movies that, that are, are nothing but irony and they're, they're doing it for a reason. This movie just seems shallow to me that it's, it's irony is not so much a, a, a chosen aesthetic as it is just a complete lack of anything beyond irony. And that's what I'm saying. And I think that's where Whitehead's book does try to reach beyond the irony. It definitely acknowledges it, but it tries to sort of reach behind it or beyond it. And so in this movie, with a couple of exceptions, doesn't do that. And I think the airport scene is one place where it does try to like, um, like just dive back into some sort of just youthful, you know, exuberance in love you know, the rules be damned. Right. And so I think that, um, that's one moment. That's why I love that scene so much. <laughs> so, um, uh, Victoria, you wanted to talk about, uh, Jamie and Aurelia. Yes. And I think this is, and maybe I'm reaching because this is the kind of academic work I do, or maybe just because I am a hardcore Colin Firth fangirl, <laughs> uh, which I will super admit to. Um, but I think that that plot, because of the way that it plays on things that we know about Colin Firth as an actor and his previous roles, I think it pushes on the irony a little bit um, to yeah. something a little deeper uh, because of primarily two things. One, um, Colin first wife is Italian, his actual wife. And when he met her, she did not speak English and he did not speak Italian and he learned Italian for her. And that's what made Richard Curtis write this subplot. Oh, how interesting. 
So that's for real. Um, Colin Firth is a real life romantic hero. That's how adorable he is, you guys. Um, and also, uh, the second thing, which I think is more recognizable to people who are slightly less uh, obsessed with Colin Firth than I am, which is when his book blows into the lake and she jumps in and he has to jump in after her. Um, very clearly, him jumping in the lake is supposed to refer visually to the 1995 Pride and Prejudice where he's Mr. Darcy and he jumps in the lake and the white shirt is wet and it's like a super huge sexy big deal um except when jamie jumps in the lake he falls and it's not sexy and it's an inversion of the thing that he is probably the most well known for visually as an actor so i think that that scene really does kind of push at um romantic comedies and kind of give the irony something to rest on but you have to know that it's there and I actually like that subplot because, first of all, I don't think that they're elitist. I just want to say that um, I think he's a writer, so he can't make a ton of money. And she's a, you know, a house cleaner, right? And later she works as a a waitress. Um, So just got to get that out there. Second of all, um, even though they don't speak the same language, the thing I wrote down about that uh, subplot is that it kind of captures the awkwardness of like early dating and flirting but they do it I think adding the layer of doing it with um, not speaking the same language or having a language barrier is adds you know it helps you understand that that we all go through um, and then you know adding that layer it just kind of makes it more beautiful and and I think like that one even though they don't speak the same language they can kind of tell like they're 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 falling in love. I think that one is not just based on attraction because I think they're falling in love even though they don't have the same language. And so I think that's another one that stands out. Um, and then they both go to the the um, trouble of learning each other's languages just in cases. In, in t- <laughs> that is one of the great lines <laughs> when she says just in cases, right? Yeah. Um, the, the broken versions of their of their learned language in apparently two weeks. <laughs> yeah. They both learned another language. Well, in two weeks. but in Europe, they, a lot of people, I mean, they've already spoken many languages because you're so close and they can, they can, I mean, they learn languages a lot more quickly than we do. True enough. So. French. I don't understand how she works as a waitress in a French restaurant without speaking French. I find that very confusing. It's Surely a por- they can speak to Portuguese each other. restaurant, isn't it? I mean, she's in Portugal. No, 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 she's not. Cause he flies, he flies into Marseille at the end of the movie. Yeah. She's Portuguese. She's an immigrant, uh, Portuguese, you know, immigrant into France. Yeah. That always I'm bothered just me. Cause if I, she's going to live in this country. She should speak French. <laughs> <laughs> France for the French, right? And so, uh, um, I so I do love that storyline too, and it is really, really sweet, right? Um, but again, the way that it mirrors the kind of blase way in which like power dynamics and these relationships, I mean, that happens over and over in this movie. You've got Harry and his secretary, um, you've got the prime minister. And the, the hold on the, a second, though. I think the secretary holds more power over Harry than Harry holds over the secretary. He's certainly not the aggressor. Well, but he, yeah, no, but the, he's not. But her entire characterization is that she wants to have sex with him. Someone you on know the internet nothing. called her a sentient vagina. <laughs> What's that? Someone on the internet called her a sentient vagina. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, Mia is, I think, is her name, yes. right? Yeah. Um, but and I mean. 
Alan Rickman, super sexy, fine, agree, but like we don't know anything else about her at all. Right. Um, except that, I mean, I just would think in any workplace, boss and secretary, I mean, whether, however bad the secretary is putting it out there, like, I just don't think it's appropriate, right? Um, and it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Well, no, that's true. But, and then I'm just saying in context, there's this repeated motif of these power relationships that, I think are worth pausing over. And, and, and I think that the, the Jamie and Aurelia one is a minor one because she technically doesn't work for him. She works for the people who own his, the place he's renting. Right. But, um, it, and so I guess it's maybe a resolution of it. I, I love this. Yeah, they don't I, I until think, after she's out of his employee anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the least of those. That's not as problematic as um, Mia and Harry or certainly as Natalie and David. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with that. I, but it's still part of that same question, right? And, and so um, – and it's also a class-based one too, right? You have sort of a, a – I think he is wealthy um, based on what we've seen of his life. I mean, I know he – He's a rents a house in France for two weeks every year. Right, right, and so I mean, he's got some resources. It and doesn't so, mean it's an expensive house. I mean, yeah, but but I, I don't know that that's definitely my one of my favorite storylines in the in the, the my favorite relationships in the movie. But I do think that there's something yeah, mine too. Over. And and when I don't know when she she. she he, he first seemingly notices her when she strips and he sees the tramp stamp right on <laughs> on, on the tattoo. And so, um, yeah, that's uncomfortable. <laughs> that's a little uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm not saying I don't like the movie, um, uh, but I do think that these are things worth like sort of considering. Um, any other? I think that that scene is more this... uncomfortable than it was 10 years ago. Yeah, it's definitely that's yeah, it's aging worse. Yeah. yeah. Um, Michael. I find the scene with the manuscript flying into the water to be so stupid as to be unbelievable. Like, why is this guy? First of all, who writes on a typewriter? There are a lot but, of people that write on typewriters. My, my pastor Rob does. You write on a typewriter. Why on earth would you go sit out in front of a lake with the wind blowing and stack up your papers? Like, that's just asking for it. That, that's an idiot plot to me. And he does put a rock on them. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. That was, he was uh, being, yeah, that was good of that. Uh, that's Wonder Boys, though. That Michael Douglas, is, in Michael Chabon's book, uh, Michael Douglas's character in the movie adaptation, he does the same thing. In the end of that movie, he does go to a typewriter. Um, but yeah, so, you're right. It's all logical, like, fallacies for you then, Michael, right? Um. No, I mean, it's not just that. I, I And I, I'm willing, I, I don't love romantic comedies, but I'm willing to accept a little bit of an idiot plot. If that was the only problem with the movie, I don't think it would make me not like it. But I, I, I think really mostly my my problem with it is it is a very shallow, nihilistic movie to, to my mind. And, and maybe I'm just going into it asking for the wrong thing. Well, I don't know. I think you don't submit to the romantic comedy the way that other people do, though. Like, for example, this week we'd been uh, I'd been wanting to watch this movie all week because I watch it every year. He doesn't watch it with me every year, but I watch it almost every year. And so every night uh, he'd been saying, OK, we'll watch it. We'll watch it. And I was texting him from work. I was in the middle of some mind numbing project or other. And he said, 
uh, I was saying that I was I was having muscle pain that day, and he said, "Okay, tonight you can take a bath, and then we'll watch Love Actually." And so I texted back in all caps, "To me, you are perfect," which is of course one of the cards that uh, Mark <laughs> holds up. And he didn't get the joke, and I was like, "Oh, okay." Like, For me, uh, I, I just I'm used to you thinking of me as perfect. That's all. <laughs> He just accepted it as a statement of fact, right? And so, um, <laughs> I bought that DVD for you at a grocery store, and I feel like that is a grand romantic gesture. <laughs> sure, the the ninety nine cent bin. Okay, I think it was five dollars, but still, <laughs> we bought this one a long time ago. Um, I, I do. So one thing you're talking about shallowness, though, and I think that's going back to the Colin um, uh, storyline. That is one thing that's interesting about that storyline is that America is every bit as shallow as he hopes it is, right? <laughs> so he gets there and it's almost, it's an extended joke where, you know, Don Draper's wife is there, one of these, like, one, one of these three women. That oh, are, yeah. That America's are... <laughs> first exposure to January Jones, I'm pretty sure. That's right. Um, and so, and, and everything just folds out like this, like, 12-year-old boy's fantasy, right? And America turns out to be every bit as shallow as he dreams it might be, right? And he brings back all these kind of stereotypes. And so I do think the movie does kind of value shallowness almost. I don't, I don't know that it it's shallow unintentionally. I think that it thinks there's some sort of salvation almost, some sort of uh, remedy for the post 9-11 in returning to an era of shallowness on some level. And so um, I, I don't know that the movie, I don't know the movie would disagree with you, but I don't know that it would see that as a flaw in itself. I, I think it kind of revels in its shallowness. And probably all you need to know about the fact that that's true is that the centerpiece of the movie is a Mariah Carey song. <laughs> centerpiece of the movie is the mariah carey song yeah like that song somehow came out in 1994 except we've always been singing it every christmas since the beginning of time it exists in a wormhole yes it, it has become I mean, it's a, I mean it's a legitimately cool christmas song i have to say yeah, I, like that song. I love it yeah there's just yeah there's no way that's not a cool christmas song i, I love that song and so and, and i think the little girl who sings it does a great job in the movie and uh, oh yeah absolutely yeah um and so i i do have like so i have one kind of controversial reading of the movie um and i, I want to run it by you and everybody listening i think that um Oh, gosh, what's Mr. Bean's name again? Uh, his real name. Rowan Atkinson. Rowan Atkinson. I think he is an angel in this movie. I don't think he's a real person. I think that he, is that is the that is a common intention. Internet reading. Oh, OK. I guess not controversial. No, I think, I think <laughs> okay. Richard, Richard Curtis said that he was the, okay. the, that character was originally in all of the plots. Oh, OK. And he was meant to be an angel, which is why he tries to keep Harry from having an affair. Yes, that's that was my point. Right. And then he kind of magically shows up and winks uh, as he lets uh, little Sam through the airport line, distracting the security guard. All right. So maybe I'm not as uh, controversial as I thought. In a that. deleted scene, he actually rained down fire on the city of Gomorrah. It's really, really? I, I think what? It's, it's really a, it really takes you out of the rest of the movie. <laughs> oh, You're the worst. I've got to see this. Are you serious? It's not real. I made oh. that up. But are you serious, I, Clark? Dan, these are two different movies. It's a very sentimental vision of what an angel is, isn't it? <laughs> but I, I think it's awesome, though. I think he's hilarious in the movie, and I think... He plays this really central role, and I guess I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't look into it to see that everybody else already thinks that. So, uh, but go ahead, Kim. What? 
I think we were talking about the Mariah Carey um, uh, song. Um, I think they're like some, you know, for all the flaws the movie has, I think it's like intricately written and the, the editing and the soundtrack are very intricate. And I think, you know, you've got some things that repeat and things like all I want for Christmas is you for one. Um, and then the, at Christmas you tell the truth. Um, and then, um, you know, I think those are, you know, kind of big things that kind of are repeated throughout the story. And then the, the soundtrack, I think, almost makes the movie. It's almost like an unspoken character in the movie. Yeah, the music is lovely. I This is one of the first soundtracks I bought with my own money. As I said, I saw this movie when I was in high school, um, when I first started having money that was my own. And yeah, the music is just great. And the way it sort of underscores the action without being obtrusive is, is really lovely. Yeah. And we were talking earlier about the scene with, um, is it Carl and, uh, no, not that one. Um, Harry and what is the, um, Karen, Karen, um, you know, at the end, you know, when she is, I think the music makes that scene when, um, you know, she's straightening the bed and things like that. And they, and it's also the editing there. I think just the, the music and her standing there would have been one thing, but climaxing, like they, they, um, it's like a crescendo up to that moment where they show the pictures of the kids. Like it's, it's helping you feel her life and feel the heartbreak that she's feeling in that moment that you, in, you know, but I think it just kind of like underscores it for you. Yeah. And also, and not, go ahead. And not only do they include Joni Mitchell, who is an important person to Karen as a character, and not only do they include the Joni Mitchell song, Both Sides Now, which reflects on the difference between love as a young person and an older person, but they include the re-recording of Both Sides Now on the album of the same title, um, which Joni Mitchell re-records as an older woman. So there's like the layers that really um, reflect on the character in a way that totally works yeah i was gonna say the same thing you gotta go back if you're listening and listen to both versions of that song and the the older version of that or the i'm sorry the older Joni version the older Joni mitchell version the the remake of the song is uh carries so much more gravity because i mean you just feel the weight of experience um uh in that and it's just it's an immense song and it's just a it's a great they handle it so well in this movie. I mean, yeah, yeah uh, there's yeah, there's no doubt about it. There's another moment that I think the soundtrack really kind of carries the movie is, to me, Unrecreated Love is beautiful because I guess I was shy as a younger child. And, and so Sam being able to go up and tell Joanna and run through the airport, I mean, I would have never been able to do that. And for so many of the storylines to be middle school level um, and for uh, – is it Juliet and Mark, right? You've got Mark who is in love with his best friend's wife and how tragic that is, even if it's hollow, right? It's tragic. And for him, I've always, I did love the scene, maybe less than I did 10 years ago, but the scene with the posters in the alley. But um, to me, Have the- you seen, Kim, have you seen the, se- the Red Nose Day sequel version of that scene that they um, that they released this year? No. Uh-uh. I think it really detracts from any kind of emotional honesty um, that that scene contains in this sequel version, um, which has almost everyone from the initial film, except, of course, Alan Rickman, because he has died. Um, 
is so Mark is married to Kate Moss, actual model Kate Moss, um, <laughs> who is one of the women on the posters that he says, maybe I'll be with girls that look like this. So it, it doesn't like it doesn't give him that emotion. It just makes it about sexual attraction again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, to me, like. I don't know. To me, that moment was, I mean, I think he was always going to love her, right? And he was probably, you've known people like this. He was always going to compare her to any woman, to her, you know? And yeah. I think that's kind of what he was saying, but he was giving up on on continuing to love her at the same time. And and so I think, I think that moment spoke volumes. But the soundtrack, um, getting back to my original point, I think... Was when he, when she realized his unrequited love and then he walked away. I don't, I I call myself um, pop culture illiterate. I don't remember what the song was that Silent played. Night. Was it Silent Night? It was okay. Silent Night. Um, no, no, I, no Silent, Silent Night is when he's doing the uh, poster boards. You're talking about earlier, right? When she's watching the video. Yeah, yeah. When oh. she, yeah, when she has seen the video. Oh, and, I thought you meant the And she has realized that he has this love for her. Ah. And then he walks away out of the apartment. And he, you know, he kind of is awkwardly stammered. And then he walks away. To me, that's a beautiful scene, too. But I think the music makes it. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I actually still I mean, I know that that's cheesy, but I actually do think I still like that scene. Um, that whole storyline is uncomfortable for me about I mean, just sort of coveting your neighbor's wife sort of on, on that level. Um, but the way he just sort of uh, there's a discipline in him understanding that that's wrong. And I think just the, the moment where he consciously acknowledges it publicly and then lets it go um i think is just really um i think it's kind of a, a it's it's unique in in this genre and and i've never i can't think of another movie that does a similar has a similar move and that's one thing i love about this movie is that it resolves so many different types of love storylines in a variety of ways that you don't often see um, depicted. Um, and, and if that were the end of a, if that were the end of a movie in and of itself, it would be really anticlimactic, but like in the midst of the, the selection of storylines you get, I think it's just kind of a really beautiful addition. But resolves is not the right issue because in the end he doesn't get the woman that he loves. But that's right? the resolution, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. his, his, his willingness to accept that mm-hmm. is, is the resolution. And then that's, that's kind of, a kind of cool resolution for a romantic comedy. But it's heartbreaking. It's it's good that he walks away from it, yes. But also, can we talk about the fact that she, when she has been married like 72 hours, goes out in the street and kisses him? Like, that is horrible. You are married. <laughs> also, Chiatel Ejiofor must be an idiot if he thinks that's carolers, because there's clearly a backing <laughs> track to it. You think they, they travel with a small band? Yeah, the, the logic in that scene, too, has always bothered me because he could come to the door at any moment and see his best friend there with these signs telling him, yeah, that you know, would telling be awesome. his wife that he, he loves her. But. This, this movie rejects realism for, you know, gesture um, quite often. And this is another moment where realistically that probably wouldn't work, but for the purposes of the themes that the movie's trying to get at, mm-hmm. um, 
they're more interested in that than realism, I think. And and I'm okay with that. I know it sounds like I've been trashing the movie the whole time, um, but that's just the way I express love. <laughs> I don't know. I do love this movie. I'm so uh, sorry, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> not to my wife. I'm sure, but uh, but uh, th- that is, uh, th- I just, when I am interested in something so deeply, I mean, I'm okay with acknowledging all the flaws. And, and I think that they actually make it that much more interesting. Isn't that what love is? Yeah. Yeah, actually. Right. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh. Michael. <laughs> Michael's had enough of this conversation. <laughs> um, so we, I think we've kind of sprinkled in a number of criticisms, but I wanted to uh, like save some time for that. Um, Victoria, you said you had some. Have you already gotten to them? Um, some of them, but I, I would say like, so as a feminist who is a feminist fairly publicly, um, I, I have several pop cultural non-feminist guilty pleasures and this movie is probably at the top of the list of those things because i i love it very much like i just i love it i love the people in it i love how like smushy and romantic it is uh but i have to acknowledge that this is a movie that thinks women are idiots like it just it, it thinks women are very stupid and uh I, I have to I have to reckon with that um, at a certain point. I think the only exception to that is probably Karen, who is my favorite character. But like, there are so many relationships in this movie where women don't talk to the people they're in relationships with. There are so many relationships in this movie where women who are in women are in inappropriate romantic relationships with men who are there. Uh, professional superiors like it just it doesn't give women a lot of agency um, and that's that's definitely problematic but I still love this movie mm-hmm. Mike oh, good, Kim yeah. sorry go ahead at the same time I mean I, I feel like though they're characterizations I've known women that are like some of the women that are portrayed in the movie so you know I give it a pass <laughs> on that level. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I've already made my, my feelings clear about the movie. Michael, do you have anything? No, I think I've, I think I've criticized it enough. <laughs> um, where do you guys, so it, I mean, it, we're covering it around Christmas time and Christmas is like all throughout this movie. I mean, the main, would you say that Christmas is all around Danny? <laughs> Christmas is all around. Right. <laughs> um, it, and I feel like it's, like a marginal Christmas movie. It's, it's so much more of a, of a romantic comedy. I feel like Christmas is more of just an occasion. Uh, it's just a handy way of keeping time in the, in the movie more than almost anything else. Do you guys think of this as a Christmas movie? We watch it around Christmas time. So I guess in inherently I do think of it as a Christmas movie or, or, or is this sort of a, a false, is this like Die Hard? It just happens to be at Christmas be weird to watch it in july wouldn't it sort of yeah yeah and so what are your thoughts i mean we call the grinch a christmas movie but it's about a i don't know whatever the grinch is learning to love and not be a grinch right we call it but it takes place at christmas so how is this different uh, yeah, fair enough that yeah um victoria Does this movie have anything interesting to say about christmas though i mean the grinch I, i'm not a really big fan of the grinch but the grinch does say something however ham-fisted about what christmas is supposed to be i'm not I sure think, i think love actually has much to say about what christmas two is supposed points. to be one all i want for christmas is you um, <laughs> fair enough. and two, although you know you're married and so am i kim yeah <laughs> and two um at christmas you tell the truth um 
I, I think that this is a pretty good um, summation of liberal Christmas. Um, yeah, I think that <laughs> a lot of, and, yeah. And, and, and yeah, the way Christmas is uh, defined by liberalism. Yeah, I think that it works. So it's definitely not sacred. There's, there's definitely not, no connection to, you know, Christian Christmas, but. Um, Nor is there in the rent, right? Uh, yeah, probably not. Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah I would, I would agree this. with. I, I, sorry. I, I, I would say that it doesn't really have much to say about Christmas, but it also doesn't really have much to say that's worth saying about love. So <laughs> I think it's probably a Christmas movie as much as it's a romantic comedy. Victoria. Uh, I would agree with all of that. But also I would say that this movie is the movie that ushered in the series of really terrible Gary Marshall directed um, holiday movies with holiday titles that are rom-coms with uh, poorly interconnected plots. Uh, see also New Year's Eve and Valentine's Day, ah. um, which are really terrible uh, kind of expies for the kind of thing that Love Actually, I think, does. I'm not going to say well, but I'm going to say better than the versions that uh, then Gary Marshall directs. But it definitely apes this kind of plot. Like um, five or six couples are sort of in love or want to be in love. And then there's this holiday that forces them all together. Uh, so for better or for worse, love actually forces New Year's Eve and Valentine's Day on all of us. Also, he's just not that into you and uh, what to expect when you're expecting. Yeah, that's interesting. I had forgotten about those movies actually, and and they do they are definitely of this ilk, right? It's like Green Day were kind of awesome. I think I know Michael probably disagrees with me. Um, yeah, I hate Green Day. But, Sorry, uh, but what they spawned was terrible, <laughs> and I kind of feel the same you can way. Agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I can uh, I can uh, I can definitely see that in this movie as well. Um, now that you mentioned that, I'd forgotten about that. I forgot those movies even existed. Jeez. Um, well, I w- weren't you better off not remembering that though? Really? Yeah, I feel bad now. I'm gonna have to go delete this from the tape. Uh, so <laughs> um, does anybody have anything else they want to sort of? add or, or close on kim no i don't think so no. uh, michael i hope i didn't ruin the movie for anybody <laughs> that's why we had you on uh victoria uh no i i enjoyed this discussion i love this movie despite acknowledging its flaws and uh the cast is i will still stand by one of the best ensembles uh in 21st century romantic comedies or any i think in any movie yeah i totally agree with you i i I share exactly the same opinion as victoria does like i unabashedly love this movie in spite of all of its whatever quote-unquote problematic um aspects and so i mean i know that i sound like i was trashing it the whole time but to me that just makes it all the more interesting and um not only at the time this movie came out so many of the people were already famous i mean like Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman, Laura Linney, these people are already famous. And subsequently, um, like the guy from The Walking Dead, that's Mark, right? Andrew uh, Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Peter is, uh, he's in Doctor Strange now. So you will, I mean, even more, and Martin Freeman is now sort of a big star. So, I mean, even like, there's nobody in this movie you won't recognize. <laughs> um, I'd never heard of Bill Nye before this movie, but now you know he's sort of- I a, don't think anyone had. I think this was- Yeah, it big- was his big break. Yeah. And so, yeah, to me, like this movie has only become 
increased in its star power uh, in in retrospect. And so, um, and that really, I think, ultimately might be what carries it. Um, And particularly Emma Thompson. I don't think you can... um, I don't think you can have this movie without particularly that one scene with uh, with the Joni Mitchell song. Um, but she her- absolutely outclasses everybody in this movie. I mean, she's incredible um, in everything that she's in and she has a pedigree. But yeah, she she stands above the rest here. For the record, I totally agree that this cast is amazing. I just think the movie is not up to it. <laughs> I, I get that, and your criticisms are totally valid. I do think there's a the, there's an irony problem to this movie. Um, Michael, but. are there romantic comedies that you like? Probably no. Uh, Starring like Humphrey Bogart or something, probably. No, I feel like there's romantic comedies I like. Although now that you've put me you on the liked, spot, what was the one with the cruise ship? It's not all about Eve, but I always want to call it all about Eve. You're talking about the trouble with Eve. It's got Cary Grant in it. Yeah, I did like that one with Barbara Stanwyck, but I I was thinking there were modern romantic comedies I didn't hate. You know, I kind of like Sweet Home Alabama. Oh, Oh, we're from Georgia, though. You got to (laughs) remember. I like. I made you watch. Sort of. Yeah, yeah. Why not? I mean, you watch To All the Boys I Loved Before on Netflix. Did you like that? It was fun. It is true. It is is true that I never say, hey, let's go watch a romantic comedy. No, that's always me. (laughs) I'm kind of, I'm not like a, a huge connoisseur of them. I don't like everyone that comes out. But some of my favorite movies, I think, would be classified as such. And so, and, and like, this is one of them. And About a Boy, I think, is like, unobjectively a great movie. I don't know that that's a romantic comedy. It it is in the sense that I mean, there's a romance there. I mean, the real the real romance is between you know a friendship between sort of a surrogate fatherhood, right? Right. But um, but it's still like in there is the sort of Rachel Weisz you know romance there. Have you guys seen that movie? Years ago. I read the book first, though. Oh yeah, I had not. I still have not read the book, but um, yeah, that I unequivocally think that that's one of my favorite probably five movies but uh but yeah and so uh, i i like romantic comedies in certain circumstances it's not something that i i go out and see every one of them we like that amy schumer one what was it called uh train train wreck, train wreck. Yeah, yeah we like that one so am i wrong to like that one <laughs> i didn't see it i didn't like it but that's okay, okay. <laughs> you know what i loved i loved wedding crashers I don't think I did see that one. I, I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> I'm not sure I would like it if I went back. And the romantic parts of the movie are less interesting to me than the the parts between uh, whoever it is, uh, Owen, Wilson and and Owen Wilson. Yeah, but I did like that movie a lot. But yeah, yeah I, I take your point. I, I'm not a I'm not a romantic comedy connoisseur. So I think I think if if I liked the genre more, I would like this movie more. It but is, I think yeah. though, like. If I may speak as someone married to you, like <laughs> as someone who like is super into rom-coms and I've always been super into rom-coms, like it's just a genre that you don't understand. And I get that. And that's OK. Like a lot of my favorite movies are rom-coms. Uh, what do I love? I love uh, The Devil Wears Prada. Mm. I will watch that forever. I will also watch 13 going on 30 forever. Um, pretty much the only reason I decided to watch the Avengers movies um, 
besides a deep love for Captain America as a character, is that Mark Ruffalo played the Hulk, and I love Mark Ruffalo <laughs> from 13 going on 30. So, yeah, I like romantic comedies a lot. Yeah, um, and I think that there's something, uh, when they're done well, I think that they could be just great, right? And, and I think for all this movie's flaws, I do think Kim is right. It is, like, done really well. Like, I, I, I know that they're, you know, philosophical debates but um i think that the the craft with which these storylines are in, uh, integrated and the performances and the the soundtrack and all that it is uh, i think it's uh, kind of a masterpiece and the the genre of having many different storylines that are intertwined is tends to be my favorite genre of book of movie etc uh, tv show etc yeah i well, like i like that genre a, a lot as i as i said at the beginning so i i'm with you there yeah. Well, guys, I really appreciate this. This was fun. I kind of threw this out just sort of as a, as a last minute idea. And it turned out to be a, a couple's discussion about a couple's movie. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed it. I had a great time. Um, Kim, thank you um, for being on the show again. It's always great to uh, to spend another hour of the day with you. Um, and then um, Michael and Victoria oh. Farmer in the same place at the same time. It's uh, it's wonderful to talk to you guys. Thanks for uh, for sharing your, your thoughts on this movie. Um, anybody listening, if you have any responses to anything we said you know where to contact us there's a facebook page if you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com you can find uh, lots of show links to uh, uh, comment there uh, as well so um, for everybody here at the sectarian review podcast um, listen to all the shows on the christian humanist radio network including the christian humanist podcast and the christian feminist podcast representatives of both which are here and uh, and until then hope you have a great new year